Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is China is moving to Mexico with my friend George Gonzalez Henriksen. George is a very interesting guy. He is the co-CEO of a company called The Nearshore Company, and they help North American, European, and Asian manufacturing companies to establish manufacturing operations in Mexico. George has lived in Mexico, and now he lives in the U.S., very familiar with both sides of the border. And we talk a lot about nearshoring, but we also talk about why we're seeing a lot of Chinese companies move from China to Mexico. It's quite a trend. We talk a lot about the nearshoring trend and why China is increasingly moving operations to Mexico. George is a great guy. Take a listen. But before we get to the interview, I want to talk about Transportation Marketing and Sales Association. Their business is helping you grow your sales. So that's TMSA. Their website is tmsatoday.org. They have a conference coming up in June, June 11th, down in Savannah. Great place. You should get to that conference. I'm going to be there. And the reason I'm going is like the same reason everyone else goes there. We want to grow our sales. And the experts are there. If you want to learn, you want to network, this is the place to go. Savannah is an easy place to get to. Beautiful city in June. I will put a link in the show notes, but check them out. I will be there. Everybody wants to be on podcasts now or start their own podcast. This is just one of the many topics you will learn about down there. Again, if you want to grow your sales and who doesn't, this is where you go. I will see you there. So how's it going, George? Hi, Joe. Thank you for having me here. I'm doing well. Pretty busy nowadays with all the nearshoring trend we read uh, i think i think daily someone sends me a nearshoring article so that's keeping us busy yes for sure yes yes so you you were at the nearshore well i won't introduce you i'll let you introduce yourself but i'm very excited to talk about this topic please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today sure sure i'm the co-ceo of the nearshore company the company is based in texas it was founded in 1992 in bronzeville I'm actually calling near Houston now, which where we also have offices, uh, and it's closer to home. What I what I call home now, which is where it's in the woodlands. Where's that by? North Houston, 45 minutes from Houston, and uh, so I spend most of my time when I'm in the U.S. between the woodlands and Bronzeville, but we have our manufacturing operation, and we'll go into that is in Mexico. So we have 14 plants in Mexico most of them along the border, but we're expanding south, which is which is quite interesting for us. So we provide manufacturing services to non-Mexico-based companies, mainly North American, that want to successfully manufacture in Mexico. And the reason you're called the Nearshore Company is because you're typically moving stuff somewhere from Asia, probably China, to Mexico, right? That is correct, although I'm glad that you asked because I uh, lately I've been going into this story when I'm at trade shows or talking to potential clients. In 1992, the company was not named the Nearshore Company. It was 
it was International Assembly Inc. And everybody used to call it IAI. So uh, I come in in 2019 as part of an acquisition. And well, everybody knows the story, right? We got hit what, by COVID pretty soon yeah. and, 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 and what we call the perfect storm. And during that perfect storm, we, as many companies did, uh, it was a time where we, we had the luxury of, of facing inward and reevaluating a lot of stuff. And in our case, branding was very, it was one of the first things we looked at, the logo, the name. And we really did a lot of workshops, top management with external consultants. And we came up with the Nearshore company. And at the time, I remember talking to our board about it. And the reaction at first was, well, Nearshore, we like it, but it seems more on the software business, not really manufacturing. But so I think of it as a purely manufacturing thing. That's me. But I'm, I'm, I'm in Detroit, so maybe that's my bias. <laughs> it's probably the, your background. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's funny to say that because now we, we go to trade shows and they say, nearshoring, I, I need to talk to you. you know? Right. So my job on the podcast is to ask the dumb questions. So I do it very well. <laughs> it's a gift. What is nearshoring for people who are not involved with it? I'll, I'll take uh, listeners back to probably 2020 to, to not go that far back. China joined the World Trade Organization in 2020. Uh, sorry, I said 2020, year 2000, I, I meant. Yep. And what that created is what we call offshoring, you know, because suddenly you have this new player, huge in terms of population, huge in terms of uh, government money being poured in, eager to work, eager to get out of poverty with a, with a very high work ethic in the sense of, Let's grow, let's do this. So then suddenly all these companies like left developing countries, especially the US, and they went looking for lower cost labor to China. And that wave that lasted probably until a few years, yeah, it, it was called offshoring. You know, you have to like you go off the shore, you go you cross an ocean. Yeah. And by the way, I I've spent a lot of time in China. And I, I was talking to a friend and he said, you know, China is still does an incredible job. So uh, sometimes I say things are changing in China and that's there are things changing. They're no longer a low cost country the way we once saw them, but they are still a very innovative group of people. And, and when you think about here in the United States, Chinese people are wildly successful here. And by the way, I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Vietnam, all those kind of countries there. The business class in those countries are all Chinese, people who left long ago. And so China produces some really successful people. So this is this was a no-brainer when we had the opportunity to move over there. We start working with these people who have just a, a history and a culture of let's get it done. And by the way, I know a lot of people are going, oh, they're communists. Well, the people weren't communists. The government was communist. That is correct. <laughs> And you know, Joe, we were talking about an author that we both that we both like, and and, and Peter Zion. Remember, yep. <laughs> yep, Peter. Yeah, yeah. He, he's he's now our, one of our gurus, you know, because he he really gives a framework to what we're doing now. And and I love to read Peter. I will put a link to his book, and his latest book is "The End of the World Is Just the Beginning." And he talks about he gives, I would say, a history lesson first, and then he talks about the future and. I watch his YouTube channel every day. 
I mean, I, I literally watch his YouTube channel every day. It's from all over the place. But I think he's in uh, the Nordic countries right now. He travels all over the world. I think he's on vacation this week, but travels all over the world and just gives a nugget of seven minutes, eight minutes. It'll be about the war. It'll be about fertilizer. I mean, you name it. He's talking about it and uh, genius. But one of the things is the end of the world that he's talking about is the end of the kind of the U.S.-led coalition after World War II, where we had this free trade, we worked with Europe, and then in recent years, we added China and others to that mix, and it worked pretty well. But it's kind of coming to an end for many reasons, and um, that is leading us to, and that's leading us to bring some of this stuff home, which is why the Nearshore Company exists. Exactly, exactly, and 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 then you're and you're right. I mean, his thesis is, is rock solid in in my eyes. Probably I'm very biased, but uh, but I love it. And I do remember he was saying that the, the the Chinese have this ancient culture of working with with rice fields, and that created over thousands of years this this way of working of very meticulous. And when I look at Chinese manufacturing today, I I, I see that. I mean, they they're really good at all these handcrafts. And this very meticulous, I was reading an, an article about the Mattel plant that does Barbie in, in, in Mexico. They have the largest plant. But it was saying the, 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 the author walks in the plant and he doesn't see a single doll. He's like, well, this is the largest Mattel plant. Like, where are the dolls being made? And that's like, oh, that, that, that's still in China. You know, and it will continue to be in China because they have, well, according to this author, they have this tradition of doing all these detailed, you know, the Barbie dolls have these all these clothes to go everywhere. And really, like, Mantel doesn't want that. They want that to be done in, in China, you know, even even with this near story trend. You know? So we'll talk about that. Yeah. Yep. So we'll get back to more about China is moving to Mexico in a minute. But uh, George, tell me a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you and your team acquired what was IAI and that became Nearshore Company. Sure, Joe. I was born and raised in Mexico City. I come from a multicultural background in the sense that my mother's side is is, is German. She's a first uh, generation. Can you speak German? I speak German. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, when I go to Germany, I kind of uh, struggle a bit uh, when it gets too complicated. But yeah, I speak, as I say, family, family German. Yeah. I got to tell you this before we go any further. I was in Graz, Austria, by the way. It's like fairy book place there. I loved it there. It is. <laughs> I was there for work this many years ago. And there's a ton of Brits there and some Americans. And they married, these were mostly engineers I was working with. They married the local girls from Graz, which seemed like a good choice. And they were living there. And they said, this is where I live now. I'm not going back to England. And some not coming back to the United States. And I, so when I went to, I was facilitating workshops and everybody spoke English without accents. And in Austria, they speak kind of a dialect of German, I guess. That's what he called it, German light. <laughs> but nobody had an accent. And I said, so you guys are all from here. Why don't you have accents? They go, well, a lot of us have an American or an English father. I was like, and? They go, and my, in Graz, they said that if the English-speaking dad only speaks English to his kids, never speaks his broken Austrian to the kids, and the mom never speaks English yeah. to the kids. They said, so you end up speaking two languages without without any accent. I was like, isn't that weird at the dinner table? They go, you get used to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I guess my parents were a bit like that. 
when I was a kid growing, then my mom, I think started to, to loosen up a bit, but, but yeah, it seems very natural at the beginning when you're that age, right? It's one language here. One language so here. I interrupted you. You so you grew up in Mexico City with German mom and and dad's from Mexico. Yeah, my my dad is is from Mexico. I mean, the family has many families in Latin America. It's originally from Spain, but a few generations in, in Mexico. I, I studied most of my life at the American school, so I have been more exposed as many Mexicans to to the U.S. And so. I guess that that uh, that international experience very early on really shaped uh, me and my interests. I, I lived a few years in San Diego, California, growing up, but then I studied undergrad in Mexico City, and I majored in international relations, which really comes to kind of bind all this multiculturalism that I'm talking about. Yeah, you're living it. You're 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 you are that multiculturalism. So so give us some career highlights before you started this company or bought this company. Well, when I finished college, I went to work at investment banking. I worked for for two large banks, Rothschild and then UBS, focused on cross border MA restructuring, so very hardcore finance. Most of it was U.S. companies acquiring companies and, and assets in Mexico and other Latin American countries. I did it for four years. Then I went to get my MBA from NYU Stern. Nice. I, I love the experience. I love New York. It's uh, very close to my heart. And my focus was actually in private equity because it's a, it was a very natural thing to do. You know, you do investment banking. It's like you, it's like you do the, the hardcore stuff and then you can graduate into private equity. Unfortunately, I graduated in 2009 when the world was having a financial meltdown. I, I remember it well. I, I was enjoying that financial meltdown at my house. <laughs> yes, exactly. And many houses were actually melting down. That was part of it. I, I went through at that time. I was working with a company and we were doing work for Chrysler and Chrysler got bailed out. But that didn't mean we got bailed out with them. And I ended up losing my job at a company that I was hoping to buy someday. That was the plan when I went there. And uh, I got let go. <laughs> and I ended up in logistics. I would never have moved to logistics. I was an automotive guy until 2009. And um, I'm I guess that some things worked out, but it was a lot lighter in the pockets after that <laughs> experience. Well, and, and those things happen, you know. It's like a silver linings because I, I – Actually, in my case, I had these offers at fancy private equity funds, and then they disappeared. So I was, quote unquote, forced to return to Mexico, where I knew people and it was my home country. And I joined a publicly listed restaurant chain operating company, where I soon became the CFO, and I stayed there for five years. And, and I really, that got me in touch with management versus financial services. And I loved it. And I, and I wouldn't trade that for anything now. So it's, again, it's silver lining. Silver, silver linings. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, I had this entrepreneurial itch that didn't leave me alone. So I left the, the CFO uh, position after five years. My mom thought I was crazy. You know, she, she was like, how are you leaving your job to do what? And I was like, well, I, I want to do my thing, you know. And uh, I raised my own investment fund under the search fund structure, which is you raise money, you go out, you're looking for an attractive, profitable, growing company to buy and run it. After three years and, and several failed attempts, I returned back to the corporate world. 
But now I joined uh, Latin America's largest limestone production company as CEO of their dry building materials or dry mortar division based out of Mexico. And then I've, I was there for two years. And that, that, again, another silver lining because I was really, for the first time, in very close to manufacturing, production facilities, factories versus restaurants, uh, services. Right. You know? And I and I love that too. So we kind of, I'm kind of narrowing, narrowing it down to, to 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 getting where I am right now. Because after two years there, my current business partner and co-CEO, with whom I share the CEO seat, he invited me to partner with him, because he had identified a company that we could acquire, and we could grow together, which was International Assembly, which uh, we did acquire with a group of investors mainly from the U.S. and a couple from Mexico in 2019. And as I was saying, just when we, when, when we sat down in the CEO seat, we were welcomed by, by, by COVID, which was pretty, pretty awkward, but it did help us to, to kind of, as a crash course on the business, and, and it has really helped now when you look back. Yeah, yeah. By the way, that kind of happened with me too. I was still doing consulting a lot when I was uh, when COVID hit. I was doing the podcast kind of on the side, and then I was like, "Well, if I'm not going anywhere for a while, might as well focus on the podcast." <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, I want to get to talk more a little bit about what you guys do. So, what is it that you're helping these companies do? First off, first question: Why do companies even want to leave? So they've got stuff they've offshored. It's in China. It's in it's in Taiwan or Malaysia, somewhere overseas mostly, right? Why do they want to bring it back? That seems to be working, or it had until recently. Yeah. What what is the what is the reason they want to come home in the first place? When I say come home, I'm assuming they're here in the United States or North America. Yeah, we were we were talking about that a, a few minutes ago. We, we got we got a bit derailed on other stuff because it's such an interesting topic. When we're talking about nearshoring, right? So offshoring wave, everybody goes to China, and then you see I mean, you, you you go to some cities in the U.S. and there's no manufacturing. Right. So where is that, all these things coming from? They're coming from China, most most of them, right? But what happened, as you can imagine, I mean, we were talking about the year 2000, right? China joins the World Trade Organization. China starts growing and growing and growing and growing, and there's wealth being created, right? So so workers are demanding as it's very natural and it happened in developing uh, in developed countries many years ago more money wages start to rise yeah they say you know what like i'm seeing all this money like i want a piece of the pie and i don't and i'm not going to work for a dollar anymore right so you you start to see that china is uh, wages are, are rising and i think that's the main or the first sign yeah and i think also getting back to this 500 million people came out of the most desperate poverty into we'll call lower middle class or middle class. It's it's one of the greatest success stories in history. That's an enormous amount of people to come out enormous. of poverty. And by the way, 10% of the GDP in China was traditionally Walmart only. That's how, so, wow. so, <laughs> so you think about Walmart can lay claim to, we help take 50 million people out of poverty. Not a bad story. Getting back to it, that not only did they want more money, they also had that one child policy in China. And so they they are lacking young people there right now. It is the fastest aging country in the history of the world. And what young people do for you is they are cheap labor. 
by the time you get to be my age or even your age, you're like, I want to be paid well. When you're young, you're like, I just want to go somewhere all day and get paid. If you can pay me beer money, I will go out with my friends and get drunk. That's all I need. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about our our our, our, our friend uh, Peter, right? I mean, he, he he's very clear on that. And, and I was surprised when, because the first time I said, you know, China's population is not really growing. I was thinking, what do you mean? I mean, we read that China's, they're actually growing because the, because life has been prolonged. Right. So people are getting older, but there's, they don't have, they, they're not having birth. So you're right. I mean, you have a country that is getting richer, no young people, even, even though they've been like importing workers from nearby provinces and, 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 and even countries. It's not as easy as you think, you know, to integrate these workers. Uh, so it's a problem. You don't want to go work at the Fox. You don't want to work at Foxconn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very easy. They, you know? They've had also. I've read this in the Wall Street Journal not so long ago. They've had a generation that that is, and this happened in Japan. It's probably happened here in the United States. Dad, dad came from the from the farm came into the city and he gets a job and he's working in a factory. And he thinks this is so much better than working in the farm. But um, the son, and most likely it, likely it was the son because the one child policy had a tendency to um, favor favor sons. And so there was, you know, they. I remember being in China one time and saying, I've never seen so many advertisements for, what do they call them? Ultrasounds. I was like, why is everyone, what's the concern with ultrasounds here? And I said, one of my coworkers like elbowed me and said, shut up, Joe. I was like, oh, okay. Well, if you can have one child, they would prefer it to be male. And so they were aborting some of the girls. So they have a shortage of women, which regardless of what, the, what you might hear in popular media, you need women <laughs> to have kids. Yeah. So they have a real problem there. And, um, but also these children are the – they call them sometimes six-pocket children or little princes or little princes because you have grandma and grandpa on both sides and mom and dad. There's six pockets contributing to that child's upbringing. Well, that kid doesn't want to go to a factory job. He wants to go learn IT, right? He wants to go. And that's that's the challenge as you get a little richer and there's a shortage. And as our friend Peter Zion, the author, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, says, you can't create 30-year-olds overnight. It literally takes 30 years. <laughs> so, yeah, so. Exactly. I love, I love that phrase, but yeah, you can't. So in addition to... They're no longer a low cost country. They have a they have a, a a problem with that low end, and they've always been in that low end work. They were not the high value. They also, I've heard this um, Peter Zion also said, they started making stupid investments after a while. They kept investing money, and they kept borrowing money, and the government kept in. They and when they invest, they don't invest saying this is going to make a lot of money. They say this will employ a lot of people. This is where the communist thought process goes haywire. Here in the United States, we say, George, I will invest because I'm going to give you $100,000 and you're going to give me 110 back. They over in China would say, I'll give you $100,000 because you're going to employ 10 people. And it sounds, oh, okay, well, that's going to work. Not working. <laughs> it's not working. And throw in a very corrupt government, Throw in their money, their 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 Wall Street is doesn't work right. So everybody invests in second houses. So we have all these ghost cities that everyone's invested in. They have a lot of problems in China. And then during COVID, we realized, you know, China's a long way from here. It takes a long time to get a container back from China. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that <laughs> until now. Yeah. You know, that, that happened, you know, that happens with business trends, you know, everybody's doing it and nobody's thinking anymore if it works or not. And I remember when, when we were, me and my business partner were looking at this company, we had this 2014 study by BCG. That's Boston Consulting Group. Yeah. Boston Consulting Group. It was called the Shifting Economics of Global Manufacturing. And we were, we were looking at these numbers and it was saying, you know, China is, is not the China that it's not your parents, China. And there is a trend and companies are looking at Mexico. They're looking at North America. So they had like the U.S. and Mexico's rising stars. And I remember it was like, great, this is our thesis, you know, and like that's how we raised money with, with that thesis. And so I would say that thesis never changed. The thing is, it accelerated. And. And to your question about what is nearshoring and what accelerated, uh, you have these companies, let's let's think U.S.-owned companies, that are saying, "I don't want to be in China anymore." Uh, mainly because of that, but you know, you have time zone differences, you have geopolitics, you have a bunch Very of reasons. tough. Also, the Chinese government started cracking down, and in the past, there was companies that were seemingly private. Now they're getting a, a government overlord say, "Hey, your new vice president is assigned from." Uh, Beijing, and he's a party member, and he wants you to do certain things. And um, yeah, I, I experienced that when I was in China, where somebody was promoted to a job suddenly, like a triple promotion to head of engineering, and we're like, "Why is he?" Somebody said he um, joined the party. <laughs> I was like, "So that our analyst who You're like what party? <laughs> he's he's an analyst for a long time, and I thought he does a good job as an analyst, and." Now he's director of engineering (laughs) and he's got hundreds of employees. And by the way, one of the other great things I learned, I said, why is nobody interpreting what he's saying to me? And they said, he speaks a dialect that we don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) But he's a party member, but he's a party member. (laughs) So he can be the director of engineering. But also, and we said this before we hit record, when you hear saber rattling from China right now, Anything that comes off as against the U.S., a lot of that is driven by the fact that they have internal problems and they're, it's a, a sign of weakness. And also, 50% of them, <laughs> a lot of the economy is coming from the U.S. and Europe too. So the idea of vil- vilifying us is not going to be helpful. Yeah. And, and now that you're saying that, Joe, I mean, we were talking about the trends of we had it. We have. We haven't used this term before, but it's reshoring, right? So you have offshoring, then you have reshoring. So it's like the, let's bring it back. And two huge drivers of that. One, let's call it the the trade war and the penalty duties, which was a move by the U.S. government under the Trump administration to impose penalty duties of between seven percent and twenty five percent on more than three hundred and fifty billion of annual imports from China into the U.S. So this was a huge driver for companies to say, like, let's go back to the U.S., let's reshore. And then the other one, which is a, a more silent driver to people that are outside of this industry, but the USMCA, which is the trade agreement between Mexico, Canada, Canada and the U.S. The US and Mexico, yeah. it used to be called NAFTA. It's NAFTA 2.0, we call it. <laughs> yep, it's the NAFTA 2.0. It raised the the threshold for automotive companies from the the 
content. I mean, what this means is that the auto parts suppliers to the U.S. and Mexico needed to come from North America. And it used to be 62.5% of the content of a vehicle. Now it's raised to 75%. And this happened last year. So these two drivers really triggered plus pandemic and all that to, to, for companies to, to, to reshore. So I get why we are doing it, but the name of our podcast today is China is moving to Mexico. Why is China? First off, what do you, what do you mean by China is moving to Mexico? Well, in, in this, in the, I mean, China, they're very good at what they're doing, which is manufacturing. I mean, let's, let's, let's start there and we've said it. They, they're very smart. Very innovative group. <laughs> they're seeing this happening. They're seeing this reshoring trend. And I won't talk about nearshoring yet, but they're saying this reshoring initiative. And that's a threat to some of their businesses, obviously. Exactly. They're the, the world's largest consumer market is the U.S. So, I mean, imagine the sales that, that many of these companies in China have in the U.S. So that is, is now in trouble or, or may be in trouble. So they have to move fast. So they're, they're, they're talking with their U.S. clients and the U.S. client is saying, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm going to Mexico when we talk about near shore or, 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 or another country. And, and you have these very smart Chinese business people, entrepreneurs, founders saying, no, 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 don't worry. I'll go to Mexico. I will near shore. So <laughs> you, you don't have to leave for me. You don't have to leave me. I'll go there. Don't leave me. <laughs> I'll go there for you. I'll do whatever you need. And by the way, does that make it life a lot easier? Yes. 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 If somebody, you know, when, when I worked in automotive, one of the nice things about it is is such scale that when you move to a new country, so when I was working in Thailand, for instance, we would say to the large players, the tier ones, Magna, TRW, Johnson Controls, where are your offices, where are your manufacturing facilities in Thailand? And they say, well, we don't have one yet, but we're going to open one, or we're going to open a partnership, or we're going to make an acquisition. You brought your partners everywhere you went. So it made life a lot easier. And then there's sometimes there's a little bit of pass-through. So I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing certain stuff manufactured in China and then coming to Mexico. And then they say, we we added a decal and sent it over the border. Who's to know? <laughs> and, 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 you know, now that, now that you're saying that, Joe, I mean, at the beginning, you know, these, these Chinese imports were heavily tariffed with a heavy duty on them. So at the beginning, they would say, well, send them through Mexico or through Canada. And then they'll go in through the USMCA. We're as, getting a little uh, sharper about these things. <laughs> yeah, of course, that <laughs> probably worked for the first month. But then the U.S. said, well, wait, wait, this is Chinese, you know. And so then now what? How do we go around it? And they, they really were forced. I got to tell you this. When I was in China and Thailand, I was building vehicles. They were launching cars. Well, they have local content requirements there. And so they would say, you need to make this some number of parts in Thailand. Well, the problem is we we're only launching 5,000 units the first year. So it's hard to make a whole factory over there for 5,000 units. So we did some of that, what we called here, air quotes, Pass through, which was basically built somewhere else and put in a box in Thailand that with Thai writing on it and said, "Hey, this is the factory it came from." That factory looked a lot like a warehouse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not not much manufacturing going on. There. But over time, we're going to get more sophisticated, and so we we see Chinese companies now 
moving to these industrial parks. And I think your team had sent me a note saying 80 some percent of the nearshoring activity is Chinese companies moving to Mexico. That's right. Last year, some people say 80%, some people say more around 60, but even though- That's I mean, a huge number. To 80, it's huge. It's huge, huge, huge number. So even, even for, for many people in Mexico, this was surprising because people thought, you know, near shore and these are US companies coming in, like they have historically come, but now more. And no, it's actually driven by Chinese owned companies setting up a factory in border cities, specifically Monterrey and Saltillo. I mean, just those two cities, just Monterrey is taking more than half of that. So the lion's share is definitely in Monterrey, which is Mexico's most sophisticated in terms of manufacturing and supply chain and even in manufacturing culture city in, in, in Mexico. It's in the Northeast of Mexico, in front of Texas, which if you're from the US, it's kind of the middle of the US. And it's very connected. I mean, just go up north through Laredo, through Nuevo Laredo, and, and you're That's right. That's Laredo or I-35. Nuevo Laredo for those of us who don't speak Spanish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry for that. Sal- That's where my accent comes. Yeah, from. and Saltillo. And that's what I would call salt. Salt. <laughs> Saltillo. We've been making vehicles down in Mexico for a long time. There's complex manufacturing facilities that are very advanced down there. These are not. This is not going down to third world locations. These are all very sophisticated manufacturing facilities. I'm not saying all of them, but I spent a lot of time in Laredo and then the other side on the, right over the border from Laredo is Nuevo Laredo and very impressive facilities over there. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're very, they're very sophisticated. They're, 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 they're state of the art. A lot of this is automotive. So, I mean, you, you, you're going to sell to an, an OEM. You, you have to. I toured, I toured like I, th- I think like 10 warehousing companies on the Nuvo Laredo side and then the R- Laredo side. And I remember just looking and I, I asked each one of these companies, what percentage of this stuff is automotive? And they would say oh, 60%, 80%. It was very high percentage was automotive. So we've always had that pipeline from Mexico to the uh, for the last generation. One other thing I want to throw out there, we do know there's problems in China with the government. And there's people who are private business owners who are now feeling squeezed a little bit. They've always had the government looming over their shoulder, but now they're being given a party member or a, hey, here's your new partner. <laughs> and moving to Mexico and opening up a second facility, I think this gives them the chance to get a little distance between them and Beijing. Am I right to say that? That is exactly right. And by the way, they're moving to Canada too. And the U.S. Again, closer to close to the U.S. Yeah. We saw this during, you know, we've all still watching the Ukraine and the Russia stuff. When they start talking about the Russian oligarchs, a lot of the Russian oligarchs owned homes in Brazil or New York City or Toronto or anywhere else, London. They got their money out. And I keep thinking there had to be like bags just like because you can't move it easily. So I... I, I this is the same things happening. If you have money in China and you think that things are coming to an end, you're like, I'm going to open up a factory in in Mexico. Or better yet, I'm going to get George to open a factory for me. In <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get the Nearshore company <laughs> to open a factory in Mexico. But you typically don't work with Chinese companies is what you told me. Well, we typically don't. And which is 
You're, Which you're is kind of crazy it. after what we're talking about. We are. We're definitely open to it. And we've been engaging with a few of them, either directly or through uh, third-party consultants, which now it's a fairly common figure in Mexico, as you can imagine, looking for land and, and looking for uh, factories. But what we have seen is that Chinese business owners have a different mindset than our traditional U.S., North American, European client. You know, in the U.S., business owners, CEOs, they are used to and willing to pay for services. And we provide manufacturing services. I mean, we also provide manufacturing operations, which is through the years, and I'll, I'll briefly explain that, through, through the years, our clients need certain manufacturing being done. And we go like, well, we, we can do it for you. Let's let's give it a try. And, and with that in mind, now we have an injection molding division. We have zinc plating. So we have a, we have our own our, our own equipment. We have sewing and fabric cutting equipment. So we are also a manufacturing company. So we do contract manufacturing, but our main business is manufacturing services. And with these Chinese counterparts. What we have concluded is that they, they, they don't understand or don't like to pay for services. So they're like, what are you going to give me? You're going to, you're going to, I'm going to, you're going to give me the plant. I'll buy the plant or something very tangible. But if it's a service, they'll say, I, I'll do it. Yeah. I remember this happened to, uh, I, we opened up an axle plant in China and state of the art, the best axle plant you would ever see. So I remember being there and it's like, this is unbelievable. And then my American counterpart in China said, yeah, we just can't convince management to pay for the training. So we don't know how to use the equipment. And I was like, what's that cost? They go, it's like a hundred grand. It's, you know, it's pretty intensive because there's a lot of machines in an axle plant. And I was like, so you spend millions and millions on this beautiful axle plant, but we don't know how to run it because we're, and so I was like, Hey, you're going to try and figure it out. <laughs> and, and you know what, Joe, I mean, Mexico can be very complicated to operate if, if you've never done it before. You know, you have the, the, the unions, you have the government, you have the legal framework. I mean, it's not easy to navigate for a first newcomer, especially the, the maquila industry, which is called maquila many years back. It's a very long story, but uh, now it's called the IMEX program. And that's all geared to be able to manufacture in Mexico duty-free, tax-free. So that, that regime has been key. That is where we operate. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with that, just one mistake and you'll lose a license. So what we tell these... these, these you need a guy. You need a guy. <laughs> and they're saying, no, 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 I'll figure it out. Trust me. I mean, you don't want the Mexican IRS on top of you. They won. I understood this from working with a, a logistics a trucking company. They said, you know, Border crossings are different in different locations between El Paso, Laredo, all, all these different border crossings. That they said they they operate slightly different, and so if you don't have the the local the nuances, a sense for the local, the nuances. Yes, exactly. So, so let's switch gears. We now know we now know oh, companies are nearshoring and they're coming to you, and not so much Chinese companies, but you're open to it. What are you doing for these companies? Let's just say I call you and I say, hey, I have uh, some brackets that are being manufactured for automotive. They're being manufactured right now in 
China, but I want to move that to Mexico. What do you do for me? The first thing that we do is that we will get you up and running in less than eight weeks without you having to open a Mexican company, without you having to get a single permit in Mexico. So that that's the first thing. So how do you do that? So how we do that, one is how we're structured. So our holding company is a Texas-based company. That's the company that engages with our clients. And the operating companies are in Mexico, and they hold the maquila certification, right? So we give them or provide an umbrella where our clients can operate without having to open a legal structure in Mexico. And the main three things that we provide to them is one, we are their, their employer of record. So we'll get the workers you need for your manufacturing. We're the tenant of record. We'll get the building for you. And we're the importer of record. So we'll, we'll import all the raw material. Again, tax-free, duty-free. That's our most plain vanilla basic service. So, so let's just say I've got, let's just say in, in China, I have a whole bunch of machines that I use to make my brackets. These are sheet metal brackets. How are you going to do them? How are you going to get the, everything up and running in eight weeks? Well, I mean, eight weeks is when you're based in the U.S. because a lot of our clients are based in the okay, U.S. Yeah. So the fir- yeah. they first, so where I was taking you before was first companies want to reshore. They, I'm going to come back to the U.S. Obviously, it's very natural. That's where the company was founded. But then the numbers don't work, you know, because the U.S. has changed a lot. It's a very wealthy economy. I've said this before. We sent factories, let's just say from Indiana or Detroit or wherever, and and then now that that is an office park, it's no longer has industrial in it, and that company's walking around. We're we're a good corporate citizen. We're green as green can be. And then somebody says, "Hey, you want to move your factory back here?" Hmm. Well, good luck because no one wants a factory. And and if you're going to open a factory, there's going to be tons of Fed regs. Which, by the way, I don't think any of us even disagree with, but. When we left, it wasn't like that. And now you're going to have to hire people that are much more expensive. The Fed regs, especially regarding the environment, much higher. The bar's all gotten higher. And by the way, I'm not going to hire hundreds of people to do labor. I'm probably going to have to invest in a lot of automation because I'm not going to hire hundreds of factory workers probably. It's tough. To that point and your, your, your previous question, some of these companies... Are, are not being able to move the equipment out of China. They're not making it easy. So unfortunately, <laughs> surprise, surprise, what they're doing is they're buying new equipment or they have older equipment in the US. They're, I mean, they've shipped to Mexico. We repaired it. I mean, helped them repair it, et cetera. We, a lot of times in the China, you're, you have a partner there that owns at least half. So unless there's some sort of buyout, I don't even know how that would work. But so that's not easy to move stuff. Because I know that there's some businesses that I'm familiar with, freight forwarders, who say, we will bundle it all up, put it in boxes, and ship it back here for you. Not happening as much as we think it should. It's not. It's not, unfortunately. So a lot of our prospective clients are having to buy the equipment. And, well, you have the lead times depending on what you buy. But, but that's the yeah, bottom yeah, of course. Actually. Besides that, I mean, eight weeks, we'll get you up and running. Not thinking of the equipment bottlenecks, so that, that that's our that's our main service. No? We also have contract manufacturing, as I was saying. 
Yeah. So contract manufacturing is where you just you're doing the manufacturing for me, and I'm just I'm, I focus on what I'm good at. And you focus on making stuff. And by the way, I think that this is very attractive for a lot of companies. Lean Solutions Group is one of my sponsors, and they're on my podcast sometimes. And this podcast is going to be edited by Lean Solutions Group. Natalie, hi, Natalie. And <laughs> it's a U.S. company, but they have nine thousand people in Colombia. They also have some people in Mexico. They also have people in the Philippines now, and but it's an American company. So from a, an American's perspective, I don't have to, I don't necessarily have to spend a lot of time in Colombia. Although there's a lot of logistics companies, virtually all of them anymore, are going down there to see their people. But as far as the legal entity and the employment, that all is for Lean Solutions Group. So yeah. This is not, this, so. Model. This is very simple for us. I'm working with somebody who's in Texas, as opposed to I don't have to. I don't have to speak Spanish. I don't have to understand the way their government works. I I have a partner, you, the Nearshore Company, and you manage all that. And do you, how do you make money? How does your company make money? Well, the the way we we make money is by the number of employees that our clients. The more employees they need, the more money we make. Uh, so. We, we like to say, and, and, we, and we really do live by it, we tell our clients, if you grow, we grow. So right. we become a partner. We're always looking for things for them to grow. We're actually at trade shows and we're thinking about our clients. Like, oh, they could do that. They could do that. We give them leads. And it's because we're very aligned because we make our money through the employees that they have. On the contract manufacturing side of the business, the money is made by a per piece. But again, a lot of the contract manufacturing where we own the equipment and we own, the employees are working for us, it was born and it's still mainly used to support the services, manufacturing services division. And we have 3PL as well that was born to support the main business. So, so that's our driver. So what do you guys specialize in? What kind of what segments of the industry do you typically work in? You know, it's more than... And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you that, but let me start by saying that it's more about which sectors that we historically have not wanting to go in there. So food, pharma, and chemical are three that we want to stay away from, from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine why. But other than that, since our clients are manufacturing and we're providing the framework and the support, it really, we don't have to be experts in what they do. I mean, that being said... You will become experts, but you don't have to start off that way. Exactly. And we've, be, we've developed some experts. You can send your engineers and techs from up here down to Mexico. And where are, you, where are you guys located in Mexico? In Mexico, we have 10 plants wow. that are in the, the Matamoros region. So that's northeast of Mexico. So Matamoros that has gotten a, a bit of a bad press recently, unfortunately. But it's the farthest east Mexican city on the border. Right in front of it is Bronzeville where the, in Texas. So that's where the company was born. We have so if I, if I was to drive from Texas to your plants, how do I how far from the Texas border to your plants? 20 minutes. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's nice. I, I'll tell you, I've, I've worked a lot in Mexico. I've worked a lot in Asia and a little bit in Europe. It's so much easier for me to work in Latin America just because they're the same time zones typically. You may be one or two off. And I will say, you know, the United States, I think, is 20% Latin, right? 
Hispanic, whatever you want to call yeah. it. So we kind of understand that culture. And by the way, it's not like we don't get along or understand Chinese people, but we do get these people and they get us. <laughs> I mean, the, the border is its own, uh, has its own like subculture, right? But with a mix between the <laughs> U.S. and Mexico. I got to tell you, when I was in Laredo, which I love, uh, I went to Laredo. It's such a hub, but I remember being in meetings and um, being in both both Nuevo Laredo and then Laredo. And I remember being in Laredo, and all, the meeting begins, and everyone's speaking Spanish. And then I was like, "Oh, hold up, I don't speak Spanish. No, no, none of us speak Spanish." And they're like, "Oh, oh, so, sorry about that, Joe." And, and then they switched to English, and yeah, I was like, <laughs> "And I was like, so if the default in Laredo, in some places, these was trucking companies, LTL companies." The default was Spanish, and unless there's a few of us who don't, and I always say, I got to tell my bad joke again, George. <laughs> if you speak two languages, you're bilingual. If you speak three languages, you're trilingual. If you speak one language, you're an American. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, that's understandable. I mean, if everybody speaks English, really, you get comfortable with that, and it's very natural for that to happen. You're not forced to. So let's wrap this bad boy up. So. I'll, I'll just finish one yeah. my, my comment yeah. because we have 10 plants in Matamoros and I didn't finish that idea. We have another facility in Nuevo Laredo. We have another one in San Luis Potosí. Oh, and I was, we're I was soon to there. open Monterrey is our next, uh, it's our next uh, our facility. So that would be San Luis Potosí for you American speakers and yeah. uh, <laughs> Matamora. <laughs> and um, would you say Monterrey? Yes. Yes. Well, that's that's I, I really like what you're doing because I do feel like there's a lot of companies that say I have to do this, but it is a daunting task to say we have to hire a plant manager in a country that even though it's right next door, we don't understand. And then we have to open up a facility. And if you don't get the right location, the right guy, like the senior management that you're trying, you're screwed. And I, and you might find out I got a plant and I'm not allowed to build what I thought I could build there. I don't have the – you can spend a lot of money and go through a, a lot of travel, a lot of travels trying to figure out what to do and not ever get there. You need the local help. You said it. You need the local help. And this is a relatively safe way to give a try. Yeah, so you could start and say, hey, you know, George, I want you to open these up. At some point, I want to run them myself. But – yeah, they get, this is this is the training wheels, and maybe I'll forever partner with you. But if I want to, I'm sure you'll let you'll release their equipment at least if they. Should say one of so our <laughs> average average tenure for our clients is 14 years. Wow, so they, that means they, they they like us, or so we're doing something right. But Nothing some of them last 14 have years. stayed for five years. Some of them is after five years, they get, I got the hang of it. I I get I'm, it. I'm, I, I I get it. Right. And, and we're fine. With that. And Mexico is nice when it's cold up in New York or Detroit. So I'll go <laughs> yeah. down there more. <laughs> so, so I want to ask final thoughts on this. So, what's next for you, George? What's next for the nearshore company? And then what's next for this nearshoring trend that we see beyond just China moving there? What's what? What do you see happening in the next couple of years? First of all, I see a lot of U.S. companies that are now sort of in analysis mode because I see a lot of them wanting information. I'm not sure. And that I think that is very, very, that's reaching a tipping point. And what I do think is that this is going to certainly create an avalanche of, of, of U.S. companies coming to Mexico that have not started yet, first of all. Uh, 
I see the Chinese companies still moving. And then we're seeing a lot of uptick in Europe as well, with a very similar rationale to, to, to China. I mean, we just onboarded or we're onboarding our, our first German company. And they, they, they want to be close to the U.S. border. Oh, so because that's where that German that comes market. in handy. You, so see, you like, never know. <laughs> we, we, found a, we found a Spanish guy who speaks German. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, yeah. <laughs> now they, now they, got, they, they got to spread the word. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, I love what you guys are doing. And again, I think it, it's a service that is so much needed. And again, I, I'm very familiar with my friends over at Lean Solutions Group because they do the same thing. Everybody wants to take advantage of people, you know, that all these great, by the way, Colombia, Mexico. So we have some great workforces down there. And everyone wants to take advantage of how do I get access to that? But we don't know how to even begin. And so it's great when you have a guide like Lean Solutions Group and when it comes to headcount or with you guys when it comes to manufacturing. It's it's a no-brainer in my mind. I don't want to try and go it alone and flounder for five years. <laughs> we got to move. <laughs> If, and then a final thought, I mean, if you plug in Texas, that is where we see our future. You know, North Mexico, Texas, that area, and we already saw Tesla announcing their, their, their factory in Monterey and how that's going to really create more synergies with Texas. That is, I mean, both sides of the, of the border have, and, and not necessarily overlapping, skills and value propositions that when you put them together, you have really, and and I and again, I've, I've been citing Peter so much, people are going to think that I'm making money out of out of Peter Zayan's <laughs> book. But I think he calls it the, the, the manufacturing renaissance. Yes, he speaks very highly of what's going on in Houston. And it's not just Houston. He speaks very highly of what's going to happen in the Midwest. Detroit and Indiana are going to benefit a lot as stuff comes back because this is where we have very skilled labor and a history with uh, manufacturing. So I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, George. Who else should I interview on my podcast? Well, I actually have two people that come to mind that okay. I, I would actually would like to uh, to uh, interview them myself. Uh, but I haven't. I don't have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. Yeah. The first one is, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, but it, I think it's Marco Papich. Okay. He is a partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. And they, I, I think, I think their, their main focus is geopolitics, macroeconomics, and markets, which is right in, in our wheelhouse. Yes, exactly. And who else? And, and the other one would be David Gantz at the Baker Institute for Public Policy. He does a lot of work on, of course, trade and international economics and, and a lot of it you have been uh, listening the to the logistics of logistics podcast Canada, where we engage North with leaders American in the logistics and supply chain community like if you like what you hear please subscribe so hit the like button great. and leave us I a like nice it. review so what conference spotify or wherever, wherever else you listen well, actually, also please we, check out our videos on youtube and connect with us on linkedin we're very big and you can also reach us on the logistics of logistics.com our website actually two shows in mexico on one in may in queretaro which is the international automotive industry supply summit in november we're going to be in mexico's supply chain near shoring summit in queretaro so both of these are in mexico but we're also going to be hosting some events in texas 
with Mexican consulates. The first one is in San Antonio on June 8th. And subsequently, we're going to be in Dallas and Houston. And that's good. That's a new format we're trying out. It's going to be more focused. Yeah, if you don't mind, give send me a link and I'll put those in the show notes because so people who are listening can check those out. And um, what I also do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, a link to those conferences that you guys are hosting and link your website and anything else your marketing team gives me. But I love what you guys are doing. It's very cool. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, George. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward.